Plus. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. The Queen of England washes her face and hands in a basin. She lets her ladies-in-waiting remove the clothes she slept in and help her slip into a finely woven linen smock. What will she wear today, she wonders. It isn't a trifling question. For Tudor women like her, dress is a kind of language, of symbols and meaning. In a world where she is supposed to be meek and submissive, fashion gives her a powerful voice. For a Tudor queen, clothes are never just clothes. What she wears sends a message, sometimes several, to the eyes that are always on her, always watching. It expresses her opinions, showcases her alliances, broadcasts her favor, or lack thereof. Her clothes are her magnificence, her right to power, made manifest. And Anne Boleyn needs all the power she can get. When King Henry VIII divorces his wife, Catherine of Aragon, marries Anne, and kicks off the Church of England, it has ramifications that rock England to its foundations. There are plenty of people who see Anne as a false queen. Never did a royal woman need to think harder about dressing to impress. In the fight to hold on to her crown, the court is her battleground, her outfits her armor. So, let's suit up. Lucky for us, today we're time-traveling with Natalie Gruniger, author of many books on Anne Boleyn and Tudor England, and the host of the wildly popular podcast, Talking Tudors. Grab your finest silk stockings and your most daring French hood. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to some of my patrons, who are a big part of what keeps the show going. They made it possible for me to hire my amazing research assistant, Carly, without whom this episode just wouldn't be possible. My newest pirate queens, Amy, Skylar, Kate B, Sergey, Shelby, and Jasmine. My boss ladies, Patricia and Elizabeth G, Jessica, Sophie, and Julian, Amy, Annabelle, Nuria, Rebecca, Tanya, Elizabeth M, Grace, Sarah, Michelle, and Monique. My adventuresses, Terry, Emily, Jessica, Jo Marie, Kelly, Anna, Carlos, Emily, Helena, Iris, Phil, and Stephanie. My warrior queens, Kate, Sloane, Neve, Lori, and Alexis. My imperial empresses, Bridget, Katie, Samara, and Faye and Whimsy Soapworks. And my lady pharaohs, the amazing Laura and the truly lovely Courtney's. Making a history podcast is a time-consuming endeavor, and my patrons really help to fuel the show. They also get access to exclusive content, including bonus episodes, full interviews with guests, a yearly Explorers calendar, contests, sneak peeks, and more. To find out all about it, just go to my website. start in 1520. Queen Catherine of Aragon is still on the throne, regal and glorious as ever. 
She's just asked her tailor to make up three gowns in a French style as described by a man named Thomas Bolin. He's just come back to England from that fashion-forward country, and he's brought his fetching daughter with him. Anne Boleyn was born in England, but spends a lot of her formative years in France as a lady-in-waiting to Margaret of Austria and then Mary Tudor, Queen of France. In his memoirs, French courtier Brantome will remember Anne as the fairest and most bewitching of all the lovely dames of the French court. So when she comes to the English court in 1521, around the age of 20, she does so with an air of fresh sophistication blowing in like a sweet, coquettish breeze. Here's Natalie. Anne also was just incredibly naturally elegant. And you probably know, you can probably think of a person now that you know that just looks good in everything and just knows how to put pieces together. This was Anne, and this possibly, of course, came from her time in the glittering European courts that she grew up in. So people tried to emulate her and they tried to copy her. It didn't always work exactly, but she was known for being incredibly elegant and stylish and knowing how to, to use clothing to reinforce her status as well. What is the English court exactly? Well, it's the center of government, the place where anyone with ambition wants to be. It isn't a place exactly, but a person, specifically the monarch himself. The court moves with the monarch several times a year. Why? When you literally have around a thousand people living in a palace, you need to move regularly so that it can be cleaned and whatnot. But there's also, of course, um, the plague affected their movements a lot. And during summer, they always, well, I say always, most of the time, upped and left London and went on what we call a royal progress. So these were magnificent progresses throughout the countryside. So they're trying to get away from the plague, um, the sweating sickness. But however, they're also, this is also an opportunity to, of course, check on what your subjects are doing and to show your magnificence to a wider range of people. Because normally, of course, this is you know, it's on display at court where there's a select group of people. But what you want is for regular everyday people to to see you because without the support of and we see this later in the reign, without the support of the people, you know, your your reign is in trouble. Henry is the son and his courtiers, household and hangers on are the many stars and planets that circle him, always trying to move closer to the warmth. But the queen is her own kind of son with her own parallel court orbiting around her. As such, Catherine of Aragon has her own household, there to help her look and feel her queenly best. A key part of that household is her ladies-in-waiting, of which Anne Boleyn has just become one. These ladies surround the queen always, dressing and washing her, keeping her company as she sews, gossips, and prays. Some of them even sleep in the queen's rooms on nights when King Henry isn't about to stop by. These ladies are often young and always single, one of the perks of being a lady-in-waiting is access to rich and influential men who might make advantageous matches. But it also brings them into close proximity with the king. It's no wonder, then, that Henry will find so many paramours amongst them. In fact, four of his six wives are servants of the women he's married to. His third wife, Jane Seymour, will serve as lady-in-waiting to both Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn. Lassie as always, Henry. Anne is great at the game that is court life. She might not be traditionally beautiful by the standards of the day, but as one contemporary puts it, For behavior, manners, attire, and tongue, 
She excelled them all. She is witty, sharp, and always captivating. Enough so that she catches Henry's eye in 1524 and holds it fast. By 1526, he stops sleeping with Catherine, giving up his mistress Mary, Anne Boleyn's sister, by the way, awkward, and starts writing Anne letters that range from merely flattering to a little bit whiny. He gives her presents in the form of jewels and fine clothing, crimson satin, cloth of gold. He uses clothes as a love language to show his growing obsession with her and with his many wives to come. Here's Natalie. So if we go back to early in, in Henry and Anne's relationship, he starts giving her gifts, very expensive gifts of clothing and jewellery. And this is, of course, a sign of favour. So everyone that sees her and sees her wearing something that they know Henry has, has given her immediately understands that there's been a shift in this relationship. And one interesting gift that he does give her of clothing um, are some they're called nightgowns sometimes, but they're basically a loose gown, you know, but mag not like the, the sort of dressing gowns that you and I would wear to, you know, sit on the couch or watch TV. These are of incredibly beautiful fabrics, fur-lined, fur-edged, and he gives her some gifts. And, and the tailor that's making them is Catherine of Aragon's tailor. So I just always think this poor man, like, you know, he has to kind of be very careful and walk this tightrope, you know, in Henry's affections for Anne. But then, of course, he's also still serving the queen. Catherine of Aragon is a smart and savvy woman. She sees what's going on between her husband and her maid, but there's only so much she can do about it. Want to know what she does when Henry starts making noise about whether or not their marriage is valid? She increases her clothing budget by 50%. Catherine uses fashion to try and beckon her husband back to her and put her lady-in-waiting back in her proper place. Does it work? No. But it shows us that, for a Tudor queen, clothing is a kind of weapon. We see Catherine using it to fire a shot at Anne, to show her, and everyone else, that she is the true and rightful queen. The queen's so-called great wardrobe becomes a battleground for Catherine and Anne in the years they're forced to share Henry, stuck in a royal menage a trois. <laughs> Step back from this awkward living situation for a minute and discuss why clothes matter so much in Tudor England. We spent a lot of time already in episodes 4 and 5 of our Everyday Life in Tudor England series discussing what your average Tudor woman would wear, and why clothes and textiles were so prized and expensive. So go listen to those if you haven't already. They're a great primer for what's to come. In this episode, though, we're going to focus on women at the upper echelons of society, and why fashion is such a powerful tool for a queen. So, why is it that fashion is so important to a Tudor monarch? Well, it's about a whole lot more than looking good. The first thing we need to wrap our minds around is that magnificence is expected of a sovereign and his consort. When I say magnificence, I'm not just talking about looking fly. The origins of the word fashion come from the Latin verb to make or to shape a person. For the Tudors, getting dressed is about not just expressing a self, but creating it. Your status, your character, your very morals are all put on display by what you wear. Tudors see magnificence as a quantifiable virtue, one on which others, like justice, depend. Magnificence, then, is something that can be measured 
and the clothes a king and queen wear is their inner virtue made tangible. Clothes, it's thought, truly make the man, or the woman. When you're a monarch, or, say, a controversial queen, that really matters. Clothing was of crucial importance to, to queenship, to this whole display of magnificence. It it reflected your status, so it was incredibly important. And a Tudor person could look at another Tudor person and immediately know what their status was. So what, you're thinking? People believe that Henry is the rightful ruler of England just because he wears nice velvet trimmed with fancy golden thread? Kinda. It's clear that there's a direct correlation between how magnificently a monarch dresses and how worthy they're considered, and thereby how much support they can inspire. Take Henry VI, the guy who loses the throne during the Wars of the Roses. He was seen getting around in the same long blue gown all the time, as if he had nothing else to wear. To his subjects, that meant he didn't have, as one of them put it, the showing of a prince to win many hearts. His shabby attire isn't what cost him the crown, but it certainly didn't help him keep it. Meanwhile, the guy who replaced him, Edward IV, aka the husband of Elizabeth Woodville, understood the power and prestige his clothes could give. He spent some five to six million pounds a year on his wardrobe. Henry VII, the founder of the Tudor dynasty, has gone down in history as something of a penny pincher, but it turns out he spent quite lavishly on clothes. His account books show us that there was always a spike in his clothes spending during times of war and trouble. This is no coincidence. Henry VII's claim to the throne was always a little dubious, and he knew it, so he made sure to always look like a king. This isn't just to inspire love amongst his subjects, either. Ambassadors from other countries are always writing home in painstaking detail about the state of the English royal household, from what the privy attendant is wearing to the magnificence of the queen. How fancy are the materials of their dresses? How well are they kept and maintained? These things offer a clear window into how well the English monarchy is doing. And of course, it isn't just a king people are looking at closely. His image is only as solid as that of the queen by his side. Anne Boleyn might be more famous than her predecessor when it comes to fashion, but there's no denying that Catherine knows how to dress for what she wants. When she first arrived in England, she paraded through London dressed in splendid Spanish fashion, showcasing her powerful relations back home. But it wasn't long before she started wearing English styles instead, using them as a way of connecting and endearing herself to the people. Over her long reign, she would wear Spanish or English dress depending on which one suited the political and social situation. Anne, by contrast, will continue to wear mostly French fashion. Trendy, to be sure, but it doesn't exactly make her seem like a woman of the people. Let's get back to Anne, who has been hanging out in her undies since this episode's intro, and help her decide what to wear. Wait, actually... First, let's wander a few palatial rooms over and see what Henry's slipping into. I know, I know. Do we really need to see Henry VIII in his altogether? No, thank you. But it's important we see what it is he's wearing, as he sets the tone for English fashion. But also because it tells us a lot about the Tudor court at this period and about the women who helped to rule it. Unlike his rather austere father, Henry VIII is all about ostentation, 
The bolder and brighter the outfit, the better, as far as he's concerned. But this isn't just a matter of personal preference. He creates the image he wants to project with the silhouettes he chooses to wear. Mostly, he wants to underscore his youth and his athletic exuberance. This ain't my daddy's core, y'all. And so he spends quite lavishly on his ensembles. His layers are simple enough. He'll wear a linen shirt as a base layer, very fine, of course, and often embroidered at the cuffs and collar. Henry has seamstresses to mend this layer when needed, but it's considered a wifely duty to make shirts, even at this level. Which is how Henry's shirts become something that Catherine and Anne go to battle over. In 1530, when Anne discovers a servant bringing Henry's old shirts to Catherine's chambers so she can mend them, she freaks. Darning what is essentially the king's underwear is an intimate, wifely duty and would legitimize Catherine's queenship in the eyes of the entire court. So Anne nips the whole thing in the bud, making sure that from now on, she will be the only woman darning Henry's undies. Well, obviously she hires another woman to do it, but it's the look of the thing, okay? Next up, Henry adds a doublet, which is a kind of long-sleeved jacket top. An inventory from 1516 says that Henry owned some 134 of these things in 29 different colors. He makes the doublet racy by lowering the neckline, letting his linen show over the top. He also popularizes something called slashing, which the queen will also take on board. Here's a visual. Grab your nicest sweater vest. Now, take a razor and cut or slash little rips in it, through which you can see whatever shirt you're wearing underneath. This is essentially what slashing is. And it's fashionable because it shows not just your top, but your bottom layer. You're rich enough to afford to cut holes in your shirt? Well then. Down below, Henry will slip on some nether hose, which encases calves in fine wool, linen, or silk. His upper hose are essentially a fancy form of baggy shorts that are tied to the doublet to create a kind of suit situation. But can we talk about the giant codpiece? Oh, I mean, elephant, in the room? What is the deal with this giant cloth phallus? Remember that a gent's clothes in this age are made of several different parts that are tied or pinned together. The legs of the upper hose are actually separate pieces, leaving a gaping crack running between them that certainly does make it easier to pee. But to avoid public flashing, men need something to cover it up, hence the codpiece. It started out as a simple flap of fabric, but Henry takes the codpiece to a whole other level. In his court, we start seeing them embellished with jewels and decorations. Bedazzled crotches! Alrighty. They're padded, too, stuffed with cork and wool, swelling to occasionally ridiculous proportions. Watch out, Henry, your tiny man complex is showing. The codpiece becomes a walking, not-quite-talking symbol of Henry's virility. It's a way of pumping up his manhood, but it's also a clear sign of anxiety about how much trouble he's having making heirs. From there, Henry might put on a jerkin, which is essentially a vest, then a gown, which Henry likes to have hemmed to just above the knee so we can all appreciate his finely toned calves. On top of all that comes a coat. That's a lot of layers. No wonder a square, boxy frame is so popular in Henry's court. That's especially true as he starts getting older and, well, much, much larger. By popularizing a boxy frame, he glamorizes his increasing size, aligning it with his magnificence. Look, ladies, it's just more of me to love, okay? 
He wants to take up space because it makes him look imposing, something his daughter, Elizabeth I, will take on board during her own reign in a major way. But more on that later. As Henry's mistress and then as his queen, Anne is both a model and a mirror for everyone at court and any who aspire to live at the heart of it. Every day she's there, she makes some fashionable change. Back in episode 5, we got dressed as a Tudor woman, putting on a smock, a petticoat, a kirtle, and a gown. If you haven't listened, I suggest you do, as we walk through each of these layers in detail. But right now we're dressing a queen, which is complicated and time-consuming. First, her ladies will warm her smock, aka her undies, by the fire. This shift dress is made of linen, in Anne's case, probably a very fine, likely holland cloth linen, trimmed with white lace and embroidered. She'll slip on a soft pair of fine wool stockings or hose, held in place by garters made from ribbon, and sometimes a pair of silk ones over that. Then comes a petticoat, made of fine wool, which is meant to act as a barrier and insulator between her body and the finest layers of her outfit. The term petticoat comes from the French for little coat, and both men and women wear them. Most of them are made of fancy red fabric, as red is the color thought to protect and herald good health. Then on comes her kirtle, the sleeveless body whose stiffness is meant to lift those bubbies and smooth everything out. We'll also be wrangling a farthingale. Catherine of Aragon brought this fashion over from Spain, which influenced all the women at court forever after. Willow twigs are pushed through teeny sleeves in one's petticoat, forming hoops that give it structure and form a kind of bell around our bottom halves. They're pretty narrow in Anne's day, unlike the drum farthingales that we'll see her daughter Elizabeth I bring into fashion later. The forepart is next, an apron-like panel of fabric that hangs down the front. It's often lavishly decorated, made out of the most sumptuous fabrics. It's a bit of an optical illusion, the forepart. It can easily be mistaken for a petticoat. Imagine, the queen is so prosperous that she can afford to have an entire skirt made out of that brocade. After that, we will slip on an overgown with long, hanging sleeves. Then come the lower sleeves, which often match the forepart and are detachable so we can mix and match. Anne will also wear a placard, a lovingly decorated fake bodice that gets pinned to her chest to hide her dress's laces. Sometimes they get pinned under her laces, which is nice for pregnant Tudor ladies, as it both hides their growing belly and gives it room to move. Even so, the placard is not what you'd consider a comfortable piece of clothing. It's more like chest armor, rigidly squashing your top half into shape. And no matter what the HBO show The Tudors might suggest to you, you'd best not show too much cleavage here. That iconic square neckline might hint at the treasures that lie below it, but only Henry is meant to see the laces that will set them free. When it comes to fabric, Queen Anne is going to be rocking things very few women in England can afford to. In our era, the most expensive clothes that money can buy are made so because of the designer who created them. It's about the prestige of the name, but in Tudor England, a big part of their value comes from the textiles themselves. So in all the accounts, we have not only a variety of um, materials, just incredibly uh, lavish materials, mostly being imported from Europe. 
So Henry basically had first dibs. So when the merchants would come into London with all their new wares, Henry got to see it all first because, of course, he has to have the best of everything. And I imagine Anne also saw everything. Much of what the Queen is wearing doesn't come from English farms, but abroad, from Holland and France and Italy. Even color has a monetary value. The more expensive a color is to produce with the natural dyes of the era, the more coveted it is. Take scarlet, which is the name for a fine type of cloth and a sought-after color. The brightest red dye used to make it is called carmine. It's made with cochineal, insects dried, crushed, and brought by ship over from South and Central America. Some red food coloring is still made this way today. Mmm. True black, as well, is expensive to make, so if you see someone wearing it, you can make certain assumptions about her status. Catherine of Aragon, for example, favors black and purple silk and velvet, creating a look that is both regal and pious. And then there's cloth of gold and silver, a luxury staple for kings and queens. To make it, gold beaters hammer metal into thin sheets, then cut it into fine strips. Those strips are wrapped tightly around silk thread, or carefully woven into textiles on its own. Sometimes someone will weave those gold strips in with a brightly colored contrasting silk, which is where we get such luxuries as crimson cloth of gold. Here's Natalie. It was certainly eye-catching. And if you imagine the, you know, that some of their clothing, of course, had had actual real gold thread and silver thread. And imagine that with candlelight and how incredible that must have looked. It's, yeah, it's, it's quite amazing. Of course, all of this fine cloth costs a goodly fortune. An inventory of Henry VIII's wardrobe from 1547 says that just one yard of cloth of gold is worth 53 shillings, 8 pence, which is equivalent to 88 days' work for a skilled laborer. Another yard of fabric from his collection, black with silver, would be worth some 3,000 pounds today. Henry apparently spent near around 4,000 pounds per year. This is pounds in Tudor times, not pounds now, which I think is something like 1.5 million pounds today or something like ridiculous like that. He spent that much money on his clothing per year. But when textiles cost this much, sometimes even queens have to pinch pennies. That's why it's handy that our outfits are essentially stitched together piece by piece. For the savvy queen who wants to look like she's never in the same outfit twice, she can mix and match her sleeves and forepart with a new gown to give herself an entirely new look. Elizabeth I will be particularly good at this. Her wardrobe is famously huge, said to include some 6,000 dresses, but really, it's probably more like 2,000. Elizabeth won't have as much money as her dad, as he went ahead and spent a lot of it, and so she will get really good at making her wardrobe look expansive when it really isn't. She cleverly mixes and matches her pieces, and she has her tailors alter them constantly, remaking them to look new. In one six-month period, her tailor William Jones will alter some 40 of her gowns. She'll also make it known amongst her many admirers that she loves gifts of textiles and jewels above all other things. And she will turn a lot of these gifts into fresh new looks. Most of the women in England could never afford the kinds of outfits Anne or Catherine are wearing. 
But even if they could, they couldn't legally wear them. Not with the sumptuary laws that dictate who can wear what. These laws, which have been around in some form since medieval times, are all about codifying what people wear. Not just the cut of your jacket, mind, but what material it's made from, and even what color the cloth might be. Henry's sumptuary laws are broken up by rank and or income, which means you can tell where someone fits in the grand social scheme of things with one quick glance at their clothes. Cloth of silver or gold is only for the royals. Same with purple silk. Velvet of blue or red is only yours for the taking if you are the rank of knight or above. Servants, meanwhile, can't wear gowns with more than 2.7 meters of fabric in them, and farm workers are forbidden to wear cloth that's worth more than two shillings per yard. Is anyone going around actually policing these very strict rules? Not really. They are easy enough to flout, and the people who break them most often are nobility. They do serve a practical purpose. Because the vast majority of our finest fabrics come from Europe, these laws protect the English wool and linen industries. But also, the laws are about drawing very clear lines between the classes. A rich merchant can't wear the same doublet as King Henry. Because, well, that would be confusing. Henry, in particular, wants his court to look fly, a fetching backdrop, but never as magnificent as he. It's interesting to note that most of these laws don't apply to women in Henry VIII's era. They can wear whatever they like. Well, sort of. For women at court, clothing is status. You want to demonstrate a sense of current fashion, to draw a visual link between yourself and the queen. But your clothing also needs to speak to your modesty. As Hannah Woolies will write in 1673 in The Gentlewoman's Companion, or A Guide to the Female Sex, women should incline somewhat to the mode of court, which is the source and foundation of fashion, but let the example of the most sober, moderate, and modest be the pattern of your imitation. He wouldn't want someone to think you weren't a proper lady, would you? As in so many times and places, a Tudor woman has to think hard about what her clothes say about her virtue, even a queen, perhaps especially her. There's a reason Catherine of Aragon wore white when she married Henry. It was meant as a symbol of her virginity, which had only so recently been contested. As is true throughout the ages, a famous woman's outfits are constantly at risk of calling her character and her morals into question. Once Anne is dressed, her hair will be brushed and mostly covered. All ladies in Tudor England are wearing head coverings, a white linen cap, and then some kind of hood. People will think you're a hussy otherwise. But what kind of hood should Anne put on? This is actually a pretty loaded question. One choice is the English or gable hood. This is kind of like a hat in the shape of an open pentagon that will cover all of our hair, with lappets that hang down over the ears, a bit nun-like. And then there's the French hood. It comes from, you guessed it, France, and it will become quite popular during Anne's reign. Women like Henry VIII's sister, Margaret, and Catherine of Aragon both wore the French hood before she did, but Anne's often credited with making it a thing in England. It's rounded instead of boxy, fitting close to the head, and it's considered just a little bit racy because of how it sits back a little, showing a sliver of hair at the front. 
the style, imported from outside of England, picks up certain connotations. It becomes associated with Anne, her supporters, and everything she comes to represent, for good and evil. That includes Protestantism. Anne is a real devotee. That's why our next queen, Jane Seymour, will ban the French hood, deeming the English one a much more patriotic and, truth be told, a safer choice. But let's not forget our jewelry. Anne will definitely be wearing some, and not just that sexy choker you're imagining with that big, fancy-looking bee. She'll be wearing pearls and jewels in gold settings, worn as pendants or brooches, on necklines, sleeves, and hoods. These, too, carry a potent kind of power. When Henry first starts courting Anne, jewels are one of the first gifts he gives her. In 1532, Spanish ambassador and Anne-hater Eustace Chapoise reports that, The lady has been busy in buying costly dresses, and the king, not content to having given her his jewels, sent the Duke of Norfolk to obtain the queen's as well. Henry wants Anne to have the royal jewels to underscore her position and destabilize Catherine's, and Catherine is livid. She refuses, as she puts it, to adorn a person who is in the scandal of Christendom. But she can't fight Henry's iron will forever, and eventually she has to give the jewels over. How does it make Anne feel to wrap her neck in jewels that another beloved queen wore not so long ago? It's hard to say. But the queen's bling and her wardrobe aren't her own. They belong to the position, which should mean she gets to keep them for her lifetime. But it turns out the position of England's queen isn't as stable as a lady might like. The queen doesn't only have her own wardrobe to think about. She's also responsible for outfitting the entirety of her household, ladies-in-waiting and servants, too. There's what's called the dynastic livery, ordered in bulk twice a year for pages, minstrels, stable staff, basically anyone who works for the monarchs. Both king and queen have something called the domus magnificence, the guard chamber who keep her safe, the privy chamber who deal with all of her most intimate actions. These are the people who surround the queen always, and they all require special uniforms. Everyone in your household has to look good. There can't be anyone kind of walking around not looking great because they are a reflection of your magnificence as well. So where Anne is reflecting Henry's court, her household is reflecting her magnificence. Then there is the livery given to individuals, which will vary depending on their relationship with the queen. And through them, she can make subtle statements to anyone who's paying attention. Livery? which is clothing that was given to your household is incredibly important because this extends the queen's presence at court. So even if Anne was not able to, to obviously she can't be everywhere at the same time, her household members are in her livery and everyone knows they're probably wearing her badge or her colors and people know that's the queen's people. And it was so important, in fact, that Lady Lyle, which was living in Calais during Anne's reign, was absolutely, you know, I don't know how many letters she wrote, four or five that survive, absolutely begging to be given this livery, Anne's livery. She wanted to wear it in Calais because it shows a sense of belonging. You are part of, you know, the Queen's household. Thus, the Queen's livery becomes a battleground for Catherine and Anne. 
When Anne's first married to Henry, Catherine boldly orders new livery for her household, embroidered with intertwined H's and K's. Anne hits back by having a special monogram sewn into her household's livery. It reads, This is how it is going to be, however much people grumble. When Anne and Catherine of Aragon get dressed, everything about their outfits is important. They are both forever on display, always observed. As a controversial public figure, Anne is constantly walking a high wire. One wrong move, sartorial or otherwise, can mean the difference between her rise and fall. But fashion also gives her a unique kind of voice. A good Tudor woman may not be able to openly express political opinions, but her wardrobe gives her agency, operating as a form of silent but powerful speech. They reflect different allegiances, I suppose. So clothing reflects different allegiances. So, for example, you know, if Anne's wanting to emphasize her, her French um, links, she might, of course, appear in a French hood or that kind of thing. We know Catherine of Aragon sometimes when she wanted to really emphasize her Spanish heritage would wear a more Spanish style um, gown or, or outfit. So they reflect those allegiances like that as well. In 1520, at an important meeting between Henry VIII and Charles V, she compliments Henry by wearing a cloth of gold and pearls, but her distinctly Spanish style also flatters Charles. At other times, she used fashion to subtly rebuke Henry. That same year, at the famous meeting between the French and English kings called the Field of Cloth of Gold, Catherine pointedly wears a Spanish headdress, a visual sign of her displeasure. That's some soft power at work right there. Anne, of course, takes pains to dress quite differently from Catherine, continuing to wear distinctly French styles. Given England's off-tense relationship with that country, this does not win her a lot of devotees. Henry finally weds Anne in a secret ceremony in 1533. They try to keep it under wraps, but her sudden change in clothing is part of what gives the game away. As one source notes, On Saturday... Dame Anne went to Mass in royal state, loaded with jewels, clothed in a robe of cloth of gold frieze, and was brought to the church and brought back with the Solomites or even more, which were used to the Queen. For her coronation, she wears French styles yet again, as do her ladies. But on her coronation medal, issued a year later, she is pictured in an English gable hood and English-style clothes. She's making a very clear statement there that she is Henry's legitimate wife and that she's English. It's a gesture meant to make her look patriotic, as her image already needs a serious facelift. Many people don't like her, and they don't see her as the rightful queen. And just to add to the scandal a little bit, Anne's already pregnant. On September 7, 1533, she gives birth to a daughter, Elizabeth. It's not the outcome she or Henry were praying for. The baby's not a boy, after all. But with Elizabeth's birth, Anne feels confident enough to flex her queenly muscles. And she does it, once again, through clothes. She demands that Catherine of Aragon send her the christening gown that Mary, Henry's eldest daughter, wore. Catherine, it will not surprise you to hear, is having none of it. She writes, God forbid that I should ever be so badly advised as to give help assistance or favor directly or indirectly in a case so horrible as this. Things get so heated that Henry has to intervene, showing us once again how intensely symbolic even a child's gown can be. 
Anne badly needs to have a son to cement her queenship, but there's no doubt that she loves her baby daughter. Sadly, she won't get to see her grow up to become one of England's most famous monarchs. So let's give her the gift of time travel, so we can see how her daughter Elizabeth will change English fashion and take royal power dressing to a whole new level. Elizabeth I takes the throne, she already knows all too well about dressing for the job you want. From day one of her reign, she makes sure she's magnificently dressed. When she enters rooms, she literally sparkles, as one courtier writes, Like starlight, thick with jewels. But Elizabeth's fashion is about so much more than shining bright. She is the sovereign in her own right, and thus she sets the fashions, and fashion is a powerful thing. She very consciously uses it to shape her image as the rightful monarch and silence haters who think that women aren't supposed to rule. First, we see the silhouettes of the time, which really haven't altered all that much since the beginning of the Tudor dynasty, change quite a lot for both men and women. Fashion for women becomes much more expansive. Hair gets bigger, skirts balloon out, and ruffs. Oh my, the ruffs. While the farthingale from Anne Boleyn's time is cone-shaped, made with reeds or rope, Elizabeth's reign sees them slowly but surely get wider. Eventually, she has to have a wheel fashioned for her farthingale, made possible by the increasing availability of whalebone due to expeditions across the Atlantic. Imagine that an inner tube and the rings of Saturn had a love child. This is kind of what a drum farthingale looks like, but it goes around your waist, sitting over a padded bum roll to take some of its extra weight. The drum farthingale makes one's skirts take on the size and approximate shape of a very giant bread box. Elizabeth could host an entire tea party on top of her dress, should she like to. This is also when we start to see the introduction of the bodies. Not our physical bodies. This thing is as close to a bra as we're likely to get in this age. I want you to picture a corset. Now picture one with lots of whalebone sewn into it to make it nice and stiff, with a kind of shelf jutting out at the bottom. These are our bodies. They're often called a pair of bodies because they come in two pieces, which are laced together to smooth us down and cage us in. Look, some of these changes might not be very practical, but they sure do allow us ladies to take up a whole lot of space. If you see the queen coming in this era, you'd better move, son. Speaking of taking up space, let's talk about Elizabeth's ruffs. These starched lace collars stick out from around the queen's neck, making her look a bit like a magnificently frilly lizard. Cuffs and ruffs have been around since Anne's time, used as a subtly frilly collar. But Elizabeth really makes them into an independent clothing item. Ruff innovation is once again made possible by whalebone. Certainly bad for whales, but apparently great for fashion. And the increased use of starch. Starch is derived from grains, which is a little controversial, especially during times of famine in England. But that doesn't stop Elizabeth's court from getting into it. Ruffs are made of fine linen and lace, which is then dipped in starch paste over and over and left out to dry, making it stand at rigid attention. Many can only be worn once because they start wilting from weather or body heat. Elizabeth has her own dedicated starcher, and it's a full-time job. Some people see them as the height of gaudy excess. 
One Philip Stubbs complains in 1583, They have great and monstrous ruffs, made either of cambric, holland or lawn, whereof some may be a quarter of a yard deep. At one point, ruffs grow so huge that they need wires to support them. The biggest of the accordion-style ruffs could incorporate some 40 yards of linen in its many pleated folds. Paintings make all starched ruffs from the era look white, and some are, but others are tinted by different dyes in the starch. Yellow, green, pink, a ruff can be a surprisingly colorful accessory. Blue ruffs become popular too. One of the reasons, writes Thomas Platter, is... Because the woman folk of England, who have mostly blue-grey eyes and are fair and pretty, lay great store by ruffs and starch them blue so that their complexion shall appear whiter. But you'd better not be caught wearing one in the 1590s. Elizabeth bans blue ruffs in that year, as it's the color of Scotland's flag. But others have suggested that Elizabeth bans the color because blue ruffs have become quite the fashion amongst London's prostitutes. One of the side effects of these rigid fashions is that it changes the way women at court use their bodies, making their movements slower and more deliberate, and forcing them to hold their arms in front and their head high. But these huge and rigid silhouettes also underscore a woman's power and her presence. Much like the shoulder-padded power suits of the 1980s, this is Elizabeth showing that she is the dominant figure, not any man. By contrast, male fashions become smaller and more modest. Gone are those square, bulky shoulders from Henry's day. The flashy codpiece finally makes its exit, and the upper hose starts slimming down and creeping up to reveal a whole lot of leg. Men's attire becomes, in essence, a lot skimpier, putting the men on display for their queen. Bow down, boys. But Elizabeth doesn't only emasculate her many admirers. She also starts taking on elements of men's fashion and making them her own. Doublets for women start showing up around the mid-1570s, and buttons, usually for men only, are ordered for the queen in bulk. Is this the influence of European fashion, or is Elizabeth using it to visibly link herself with kingship? As she will say in a famous speech, she might have the body of a woman, but she has the heart of a king, after all. Why not wear a fetching doublet to express that? You may also notice that, in her portraits, Elizabeth is pretty much never wearing a hood. Why isn't this considered the era's biggest scandal? Because as a virgin queen without a husband, she isn't entitled to wear it for modesty. Her hair is a symbol of her continued purity, which is an important part of her image. Gradually, it becomes the style for all women at court, making room for innovation and hairstyling, and inspiring many a noble lady to dye her hair a fetching shade of red. Under Henry VIII, women were exempt from sumptuary laws. After all, Henry didn't see them as a threat to his magnificence. They were accessories, not power players. But now that a woman is indeed ruling the country, suddenly a woman in a very fine dress presents a threat. Elizabeth needs to be the most finely dressed, always. She does not tolerate anyone trying to outshine her. Especially as in her court, clothes send messages like never before. Elizabeth's court and her clothes are rich in symbolism. She's very thoughtful about what colors she wears. In Tudor England, all colors have meaning. 
Red is linked with health and power, green with youth and hope. Elizabeth's signature colors are white, which represents purity, and black, which represents constancy. She also takes to wearing quite a lot of pearls, another symbol of virginity. It's all a means by which to shape her image, to mythologize herself as the Virgin Queen. That image allows her to rule on her own without a man beside her. I mean, she's basically married to England. But Elizabeth takes sartorial symbolism even further. She loves games, puzzles, and codes. A book comes out in 1586 called A Choice of Emblems, which is basically a symbols dictionary. It becomes a language through which her subjects can praise and celebrate their queen. She's given presents that feature snakes, a symbol of wisdom, and rainbows to represent the celestial. If you look at her rainbow portrait, which I'll make sure to put in the show notes, you'll see her actually holding a rainbow, linking her to the heavens, dripping in pearls, and dressed in a gown covered in eyes and ears. Many people have assumed this was the portrait artist's invention, but some historians think the gown was actually hand-painted. It's as if she is saying to whoever sees the portrait, I hear and see all, so don't test me, and I'll bet her courtiers took heed. The other form of decoration we see on lavish display in that portrait is naturalistic embroidery, which becomes super fashionable when Elizabeth comes on the scene. Her dresses, vests, and gloves show the natural world in incredibly accurate detail, from spiders and birds to flowers and strawberries. These designs are coming from new books on botanicals. For the first time, we're seeing books printed not just about religion, but domestic things too, including fashion. It becomes a mark of scholarship to recreate them on fabric, a way of categorizing and mastering nature. But these symbols have meaning too. Pansies represent thought, while rosemary means remembrance. And then, of course, there's the Tudor rose, the sigil of the queen herself. Professional embroidery is mostly undertaken by men, but for aristocratic women, it is a noble occupation, one they can use to share opinions, make gifts, and express themselves creatively and intellectually. It's even a way of making connections with their queen. Highborn women often embroider clothes specifically for Elizabeth, and she can express her favor, or her displeasure, by whether she decides to wear them. Let's get back to Anne in 1533. She's had her baby girl, and there's plenty of time to have the male child Henry needs to assure his dynasty. Half of England may dislike her, but Anne has every reason to look forward to all the years of queenship to come. In 1536, she and Henry feel so sure of their future that they make a pretty tactless sartorial choice. When Catherine of Aragon dies, Anne and Henry wear yellow to court, which signifies hope and sunshine. But that sunshine turns to cloud soon enough. On the very day of Catherine's funeral, Anne miscarries a child. Some even say it's a boy. A personal horror, of course, but this is also a political disaster. Is that why Henry starts to turn cold? Perhaps, but it certainly isn't the only reason. Some say Anne's committed adultery, or, at the very least, she's flirted too loudly. Some say the king is sick of having such a loud and headstrong wife. He's most certainly already fallen in love with another woman. 
All we can be sure of is that Anne Boleyn's fall is a complicated thing, and no commanding outfit has the power to save her. She soon finds herself in serious trouble. Anne and five men, one of whom is her brother, are all accused of several crimes, including adultery, conspiracy, and never having truly loved the king. One of the charges that doesn't get talked about quite so often is that Anne and her brother laughed at the king's clothes. How dare you? Anne is taken to the Tower of London. Catherine Howard, Henry's fourth wife, will suffer a similar fate years from now. She'll be stripped of all her fine clothes and jewels. Her jailers will strip away all signs of her queenly status, a punishment and a statement to any who see her. It's likely Anne goes through the same. No one could have predicted how swift Anne's fall would be, including the lady herself. She suffers blow after blow at the end. Her beloved brother is beheaded. Her marriage to Henry is deemed illegitimate, and her daughter no longer heir to the throne. On May 19th, when Anne is led to the scaffold, she has very little power or agency left to her. But still, she uses fashion to project the vision she wants the people to see, even at the end. She arrives at her execution in dark colors, an ermine cloak, and, interestingly, an English gable hood. She goes to her end looking as regal as she can. The day after Anne's execution, Henry is engaged to her lady-in-waiting, Jane Seymour. And while she may go out of her way to wear a different kind of hood than Anne, she will inherit most of Anne's clothes. The Queen's great wardrobe will be passed down to all of Henry's wives over the years, sartorial ghosts of the women who came before. Those fine fabrics will echo with the influence Anne once wielded, even if only briefly. Her armor, even if it couldn't keep her safe. Until next time. Thanks so much for listening. Please tell a friend about the show or rate and review it wherever you listen. You'll find the show notes for this and every episode at my website, theexplorerspodcast.com, which includes a full transcript, lots of images, and a list of my sources. You'll also find a link to my Patreon there. You can find me over on Instagram at The Explorers Podcast and occasionally on Twitter or Facebook. So much love goes to my research assistant, Carly Quinn, who is a magnificent human being, and I could not have done this episode without her. Much of the music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of guitarist John Sales. Thank you, as always, to Mr. Explores, a.k.a. Paul Gablonski, for my theme music and logo, and to the following for their vocal stylings. Eva Fulch, Jordan, and Baz at VoiceOver Elite. <laughs>